Hi, this is City Life Church's podcast. Um, as we're about to start this recording, I just want to note that it will fade into the recording a couple minutes into the message um, due to some technical difficulties that we have. Um, a, a note about City Life Church as we're in the late winter here, we are planning on moving our location and our service time in the month of February. So watch for updates about when and where that happens. It's not all finalized, but we expect to be worshiping no longer at the 20, 27th Street location and no longer at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, but rather in the morning somewhere else um, on, on every Sunday from uh, sometime in the middle of February onward. So uh, we're excited about that. We hope that you'll come out and join us as we begin in a new place. And remember that Easter is March 31, so save the date to come on out and celebrate that day with us. The recording that you're going about to hear is uh, the third message in our message, message series on reconciliation. The big idea is that God's reconciliation that He shows in His relationship with us makes its way out beautifully into our relationships with each other. As we explore that, one of the elements that we're dealing with in this recording is the issue of anger. The idea is that uh, anger is a key element in relationships and an element that needs to be dealt with in order to find reconciliation. Um, so now we fade into this recording just a little bit into the message as it was given on January 27, 2013. I hope you enjoy. You are the cashier. And Adam Sandler's character says, oh no, I'm not the cashier. I'm the guy who's hiding behind the frozen food section dialing 911. Which I thought was pretty good. Um, later in the movie, so what we see is that this expert in anger, you know, dial 1-800-BUDDY, um, you know, to deal with your anger. And this, this Dr. Buddy Rydell, one of his things as he's doing kind of anger therapy is that he teaches people in this group setting, you know, Anger Anonymous, that... Um, that uh, when you get to that really boiled up point of anger, then all you have to do is say uh, this word. Uh, I want to make sure I get it right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to say this word, and it'll kind of like, everything will just be okay. You say, goose fraba. Goose. You're really angry. You're really angry. Goose fraba. Everyone, come on. Goose fraba. <laughs> that help? Some of you, you got your solution already? And he says that it's a derivation of, of an Eskimo word that mothers would use to calm their children. That's the line in the movie. Goose fraba. Is that all you got to do? Just have some words, some little thing to grab hold of when you're angry, and that'll do it? Uh, the power of one word, one mantra. Well, the movie clearly doesn't believe this, because later on in the movie, uh, Adam Sandler's character has to confront his childhood bully. And it turns out this guy, who was a bully, Arnie, uh, Arnie Shankman has changed his name to Pana Kamanana and is a Buddhist monk. And so, of course, you can see where the comedy of this scene goes. Um, it shows us, basically, that even if you're a Buddhist monk meditating all day long about peaceful thoughts, all it takes is Adam Sandler's character pushing one or two little buttons, and within minutes you're coming to blows and beating each other up on, a monas on monastery grounds. Um, and that scene just ends really juvenile, so I'll let you, if you're really curious, you can watch that, but it's very silly. Um, so that's anger management. 
I think a lot of us, as we look at this issue, we need something. We need some help because it's not just a word. It's not just a mantra that's going to help you with anger and issues of re- reconciliation. It goes deeper. We see that. But, but what do we need? What do we need to do? The Bible says we need to look inward and we need to look upward. And in the book of James here, in this little letter to an early Christian church written by most historical people say they, this looks like it's the brother of Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus, writing this letter. Um, he gives us some hints here as to looking inward and looking upward. As you look at this passage, James 1 verse 19, he says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Those are, that's, he's, he's helping us look inward. He's giving us uh, some direction here on looking inward. And I don't think it's a mistake that he says the word listen and the word angry in the same sentence. Listen and anger. Listening and anger. Somebody once called me as they were dealing with some issue at work and um, he was getting really angry at work with one person who really kind of did deserve it. Um, and, and, and I got asked this question over the phone, out of the blue, what's the opposite of anger? And I was like, well, this is, this is one of those things preachers hate, you know, that, that suddenly we just got the answer. Usually I say, I don't know, I'll think, let's talk about it and get back to you next week. Uh, but I just, I thought about it and paused for a little bit and I thought about my own anger and when I get angry and this, you know, I got to admit, this is one of those rare moments where I felt like I had it and I said, confidently, I said, listening. And, uh, and then he said, I didn't know why he was asking, he said, that's what I'm going to do every time I'm angry now at work. I thought, that's pretty cool how that played out. And I didn't even know that I was basically, you know, bringing out through my own thinking about my own anger, because what, what do we do? We kind of shut ourselves off to hearing something else because one voice of justice in our own mind is so loud. But there it is, be quick to listen, slow to become angry. They're, they're interrelated as we look inward. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission that happened after the, um, the fall of apartheid in South Africa, it wasn't doling out sentences to people who would come forward and talk about the injustices that they had, create, that they had committed or that had been committed against them. It wasn't doling out sentences. It wasn't a legal tribunal. It was a listening tribunal. And that very act of setting that up in that way just kind of adds to this point of, you know, you can either let it fester in silence or you can find healing amidst listening. But when we start to kind of isolate and when we just kind of have our own voice of the voice of anger, it sort of, it sort of just spirals round and round, listens less and less, festers more and more, and gets more and more damaging and dangerous. One person described themselves this way in a note. I am filled with so much hate, hate towards myself, hate towards God, and unimaginable emptiness. It seems like every time we do something fun, I think about how Elise wasn't here to share it with us, and I go right back to anger. That's an intense personal statement. That was made by Charles Roberts, the man who was involved in the the killing at an Amish school in Pennsylvania. That was his suicide note. When we sit with anger and we just kind of only listen to that voice, it festers and becomes more and more destructive. 
the uh, ancient philosopher Seneca the Younger, who I'm sure you read this guy's writings all the time. Um, about 2,000 plus years ago, a little more than 2,000 years ago, he wrote this. He wrote, um, anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. An acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. That made me think of one of the first times that I dealt with hot oil in a kitchen. And uh, I'm sure, you're not going to admit it, but I'm sure some of you have done this. It was the very first time, I don't know, maybe I was in college or something, and I take the hot oil and I, you got to do something with it afterwards. And I was poured it into a container that wasn't meant to hold hot oil. And it stayed in that container for a little bit, a few seconds. And then it, you can imagine what happened is that the container itself started to melt and the oil went everywhere. That might be a picture of anger in your life right now. It maybe isn't to that point yet of going out like that, but what it does is it, is it takes you to a bad place and then it can make a mess around you in your life because of it. The same way that that oil, hot oil, just burned right through the container that was holding it and made a mess all over my kitchen. You know the elder brother in the prodigal son story? He was angry. He's described as being angry. Another biblical portrait of anger is Jesus telling the story of the son going away and then coming back, you know, the younger son. When he comes back and the father throws this party, then the older brother, he won't go in to the party. He's angry. And it's very clear in this story, it's in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15 when Jesus tells us, it's very clear that he's not hearing and seeing some of the truth that's around him because he's so fixated on what he sees and what he's hearing. He's fixated on one minute issue of justice and of getting for himself that he's not seeing what he has. And this is how the father says it at the end. It ends the parable. My son, the father said, you, think of, he's telling him what he's not seeing. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because your, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So I love this, portray, this human portrayal of this because it's so, it cuts right into the heart of our anger and our issues. That we get blinded to what we have that's all around us. There's, there's a chance for us with, with James's simple um, inward observation, be slow to speak and slow to become angry and quick to listen, with a simple thought, the simple reflection, we have a chance to say, yeah, how might my, maybe there's an issue of anger in your life or in someone close to you, or maybe you'll have one soon or had one recently, some issue where you're, you're, there's some anger there that you kind of go round and round on, how might, in that very anger, how might you be not seeing a whole bunch of the truth around you that's a part of the picture that you just this is just blinding you, just cutting it off. It's the way anger works. So you kind of look inward and you see that anger um, really inhibits listening, which is a powerful part of reconciliation, but it also doesn't produce righteousness. If you see verse 30, part of looking inward is just noticing this about anger and the inability of anger to really come through. Uh, spiritually for you. Because of our, because, he says, because our anger does not produce righteousness, the righteousness that God desires. Just a note, kind of on the side, I love that he says, our anger. This isn't a, a, a detached teacher saying, 
this anger I'm hearing about you guys have. Don't have anger. He's saying no, because our anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. It's an interesting thing to say. Because anger often feels, it talks about producing righteousness, anger often feels a lot more productive than it, than it really is, than what it can really pay off for. And in thinking about this, some of you will also say, you know, you'll kind of, um, you'll maybe want to retort or want to nuance things because you can see some legitimacy in your anger. You can see some true justice. And you say, isn't there such a thing as righteous anger? And that's a fair topic to bring up, and I was really impressed as I read so, uh, a theologian talking about forgiveness. And he dealt for a long time in one of his chapters on the legitimate uh, value of anger. And uh, this is one of the sort of conclusive statements that L. Gregory Jones makes about just, just to sort of think through how anger leads towards this desire for revenge and retribution. And he kind of follows that all the way through and say, let's not like throw the whole thing out. Let's think about the value and what's actually going on here from a positive perspective. And he says, the desire for revenge and the desire for retributive punishment seem to be important crucibles of our seriousness about justice and the defense of those who have been victimized. I think this is very important. He says, for retribution signifies a social commitment that order is better than disorder. Um, now, this is a book about forgiveness, so um, I'm not, it's clear that he's, he's just taking some time to acknowledge the best we can possibly acknowledge about anger. There's something there, there's something innate that really is about order and disorder. There's a, there's a sense that you get when you're watching the movie A Christmas Story, you know, the Red Ryder BB gun movie, when you're really, I'm guessing if we all watched it as a group, that there'd be cheering laughter and excitement when the main character Ralphie beats up the bully in the alley. Did you feel that if you ever watched that movie? Did you feel that just that smile on your face and just so glad for that turn of events in that story? <laughs> Maybe it's just because I, I had a couple bully moments when I was a kid and I'm like, yeah, get it to him. But there's something there of like, you know, kind of balancing the scales, a commitment to order and justice. And yet there's, despite that, for some reason, Anger, for us, in our world, in your heart and mine, anger doesn't seem to lead, lead us to justice and peace, at least not very often in our experience. And in fact, it leads uh, to all kinds of other things. Um, and in fact, it doesn't even lead necessarily, it, it doesn't lead you towards peace, towards inner peace to follow, keep following the anger through. One person quoted uh, that I read this week said, to unleash your anger and to let it rip is proved by most psycho psychological research to only escalate irritation and make a person more likely to repeat the pattern even more frequently. Anger uh, doesn't bring about a righteous character. It's, it's ineffective at producing righteousness. It's ineffective as a tool for you to, to come out of things and situations and relationships with a more just outcome. And instead, usually, what does it lead to? What's our experience? It leads more towards retribution, right? The bully then wants to bully harder the next week if he gets beat up by the little kid or comes back with a few extra bully friends when uh, 
the little guy does, at least expects it. Cycles of retribution. And then you're, you get into these cycles and, and you feel this desperate need for someone to break the cycle, except both sides are seeing it so clearly that they're right, that none of them can see the other side. So in terms of producing righteousness, in terms of bringing about fairness, I think what James is trying to say here is don't, don't be naive about um, your anger and about what it's able to produce in your life. Be self-reflective, be inward-looking, and see that you can't... Basically, you know, it doesn't produce righteousness. What does it produce? At best, it produces self-righteousness. And you've probably been there. Hopefully, you're honest enough to say you've been there. It's not enough, though, just to do some inward thinking, right? It's not enough to just look inward at your own anger and, and understand it. That's the necessary part, but it sort of softens you up and gets you ready for something that you really need, which is to look upward. So let's think about that a second. Looking upward. Um, a crucial tool for you in relationships and reconciliation is the ability not only to look inward, but to look upward, to look to God. And this is how it's talked about in this passage. Really, I'm only dealing today with the verses 19 through 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And I would say it can save you from the cycle of anger and the cycle of retribution and the cycle of vengeance. The word planted in you. What, what might be going on there with respect to anger? What might James be thinking about in terms of the power of, really he's talking about God's word um, and having that be a part of your character, that you listen and you're not quick to get angry and you're quick to, to humbly accept the word planted in you. One of the things that I'm very uh, drawn to in the Bible is that the Psalms, which are kind of the prayer book, they teach you how to pray. The Psalms are filled with every human emotion and every human place. And one of the things that a lot of people realize, if you really read through them, is that we're taught through these prayers to worship and to live, and we're taught through them to bring anger to God. Um, and many of the prayers are disturbing in how they do that. So take... Uh, for example, Psalm 74 is one example. Why do you hold back your hand, your hand? Why do you hold back your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. That's a prayer to God that the ancient people of Israel used to pray together in worship. Um, Psalm 79. Why should the nation say, there is, where is their God? Before our eyes... Make known among the nations that you avenged the outpoured blood of your servants. The Psalms teach us uh, to go upward, to look upward. So if you're listening to the word planted in you, and if you're looking to have God's word planted in you, that's a part of the picture. That's a part of healthy dealing with anger, is to go upward with it, to voice it to God. And uh, one writer who I often quote with Old Testament stuff, his name's Walter Brueggemann, um, great theologian and scholar of the Old Testament and of the Psalms. He says that the Psalms teach us that it is an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hatreds to God, knowing they will be taken seriously. Do you do that? So one of the things, looking upward 
and the word planted in you, what that will produce is that dynamic of saying, I, I'm going to go somewhere with this. And something to know about that, another thing that comes from the word that hopefully will be planted in you is a mantra, a different mantra than um, Guz Fraba. A Bible mantra in Exodus 34, verse 6, is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to... Anger. Slow to anger. That's another mantra. That's another part of the word planted in you. And that's part of the risk of, if you follow through on those prayers and you do go to bring your anger to God, there's a risk in that. It's risky. Because that God might be gracious. More gracious than you want Him to be. This is the God who is slow to anger. I love how um, one of the Old Testament stories of Jonah is he's kind of like the, the older brother, only worse. So he's very angry as he ends up being this prophet and overlooking this city of Nineveh who God want, wanted him to come and preach to. He's very angry. And his vision, he's, he's seeing crystal clear that the outcome that needs to happen is that the city is so evil and has been so bad to the Israelites that they need to just burn. And so he sits off to the side under a a tree, and waits for the fire to come down on these people. And that, that's basically his posture towards this group of people. That's his vision. And God's vision in that story comes and basically shows us that God knows and sees something totally different. God sees this as a people, and he says, I think this is a people that's going to respond really well to my grace. Jonah can't see that. Jonah, Jonah really needed to look upward. He needed to know a little better the mantra of Scripture. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. He didn't, he didn't know it yet. It wasn't planted in him yet. There was something still missing. Um, what I think Jonah and the elder brother and all the other anger examples that I've given so far, what they're all doing, what they're all a part of, or what they're all not doing in a sense, is they're, they're overlooking something the Bible has over and over impressed upon me is that we're all in the same boat. Um, get ready, because this is part of this. It's just not fun. You don't always want to grab hold of this, but it's true. God could legitimately let his anger rip on all of us. That's how the Bible puts it. But he's always consistently looking for ways to get slower and slower and slower and slower in bringing out his anger on you so that it doesn't blow up on you. That's the biblical picture. It almost seems like, even though I wouldn't necessarily say this is accurate, but it kind of feels sometimes like God's getting better and better at that throughout the Bible. Or it's just becoming clearer and clearer to us. Maybe that's a better way to put it. So, um, what's the best way to to um, shift in your, your own dealing with anger? What's the best way for, for that to happen? It's, well, it's for that thing, that way that God relates to us to get implanted in you, for that to become very real and personal. That's what Jonah hadn't quite grasped. He can't, hadn't caught the, we're all in the same boat. We're all legitimate recipients of anger. So if I'm alive, in a sense, Jonah, if I'm alive to see this day, I should be, Surprised and amazed at God, how slow to anger God has been with me. And one of the best ways to implant that in yourself is when you're in the middle of being angry. 
And, you know, so maybe, maybe there's like one or two of you, then you're just in the middle of some situation right now that it's really hot, you know. It's really hot. And, you know, we always talk about hot being the deal with anger. So maybe you're in a really hot place. That would be the best place today to grow spiritually with this aspect. Right in the middle of that to think of how angry you are and how justified you would be to let them have it and to hold it against them. Right there to think about, okay, yes, think about God with you. Over and over again, he refuses to take that approach. Over and over again, he's attempting to find some way to deflect it. And this is the amazing thing. We can't come up with that way. We have sort of type 1 anger. No, let's say it this way. We have type 2 anger. It's kind of a foggy, hazy anger that always sort of goes awry and always leads to retributive um, cycles of uh, revenge. God has this kind of pure type 1 anger. And he has a way of having the legitimate justice thing and the slow to anger thing and to hold them together at the same time, grace and truth. And we see them. Our experience of God's grace comes when we see how he is so amazing at holding those together that he even found a definitive way to approach us and to come to us when those two came together on the cross. That's, that's what he did. He found a way for his anger to kind of get released and justice to be had and for us not to blow up because of it and for us to be reconciled to him. And then he rose from the dead. Um, when you have kids, it's kind of amazing because it brings back uh, how when you were a kid, how sometimes anger just kind of whoop, comes right away. And so um, one of my kids was really mad at a, a, one of his friends, one of his good friends at school. You know, they're like best buds, and they're really mad at each other after school when they both go home. And uh, later that day, the phone rang. It was the cutest thing of all because, you know, kids, there's another part of children is you realize they don't really know how to have conversations on the phone yet. And so you kind of have to handhold with these conversations. So we got it on speakerphone right in the middle of the kitchen, not really knowing what was going to happen. And so the, the boy on the phone has called and he says, hey, can, he's saying to my son, he's like, can we just be, can we, uh, how do you say it? Can we just forget about it and be friends again? <laughs> can we just forget about it and be friends again? And it was like the smile erupts on my son's face and it's immediate, immediate dispelling of the supercharged nature of the anger and reconciliation. Now, that's a tiny little real-life, everyday picture of what God does with you, what God's always doing with you. And then what the amazing thing is, we have this reservoir. Um, we have this deep, meaningful, true reservoir of grace to bring to every broken relationship, every instance of anger, every instance of irreconciliation that's just ready to be tapped and brought to the table, especially if we know God's reconciliation with us. Let's pray. God of grace, may you make us reconcilers and produce this in our life as much as we kick against it and fight against it and don't know how to do it. Um, Our anger is a powerful thing but you're more powerful. Your grace is way more powerful. Your cross is way more powerful. 
And we ask that your Holy Spirit allows that to be unleashed as a power in our life that brings legitimacy to your, to your gospel, uh, to your church, and to all that it is that we do here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.